until recently I decided in my time alone with the Lord that he said, why don't you just build a series of Christmas messages out of your own observations, almost as you go, as opposed to developing a deeper, deeper plan. Just say, what stands out to you in the text as you study, and how can you make that readily applicable and available to other people? Wouldn't that be the case for each of us, that when we go to spend time alone with Jesus, that our prayer might be, Lord, would you give me something fresh today that I might impart to others? So this, considering generosity, considering Christmas, is, is birth, uh, birthed out of that. And this week we're talking about considering generosity. This idea of consideration is to give careful thought to something or to someone, especially over a period of time. It works not only with the scriptures, but it works in cities as well. Recently, as many of you know, I had the chance to travel to Istanbul, Turkey, to spend time with some workers over there who are advancing the gospel and doing incredible things. But while I was there, I took time to consider and back it up just a slide real quickly, John, and then we'll move ahead. I took time and just made myself at home in the city, in the neighborhood that I spent just four or five days. But when I got there, I realized how important it is to learn about a city's history, to learn about its people, and to learn about its future. And to learn about the future of a city, we need the prophetic gift of God, his his ability to tell us and to prophesy about things that will come is ultimately what directs people towards their king. And so in Istanbul, I was learning, practicing again, how to be present in a neighborhood, how to walk its streets and drink its coffee and engage with its people. And I sat one morning uh, and, and took that picture um, and just took time to consider what it's like in a city to walk its neighborhoods at sunrise and to visit with its shop owners and to learn its culture, to walk its streets, and to be present with people. The way that I chose to be present in that city is the way that I'm hoping, the way that I'm choosing to be present in the scriptures as we consider the Christmas narrative. To spend time walking through its streets, walking through its verses, to spend time engaging with its characters and learning and asking questions, to consider the Christmas narrative over a period of time. And so what happens this week? I really started thinking as I slowed down, what happens when we linger in the Christmas narrative? What happens when we just camp out in a passage of scripture that was become all too familiar to us for many of us and just say, God, I bet you by the power of the Holy spirit, you will show me something new as I consider. So what happens I just took note of what happened to me this week as I greater considered the Christmas narrative. What happens is that we slow down. I slowed down as I took time to be in the Word. We experience the love of a father in an entirely different way. Maybe we can close that door. Our kids are closer now, which is awesome. (laughs) And it's great to hear them singing. We consider the love of our Father when we slow down. We gain clarity and we rediscover our purpose as disciples of Jesus when we slow down. When we slow down, we are challenged by the Holy Spirit's persuasion towards generosity. We remember the good news and we find peace with God. These are things that I found to be true for me this week as I slowed down to spend time in the Scriptures. Beyond that, we discover ourselves in the story. A beautiful picture of someone discovering. Have you ever watched a child read? 
Have you ever watched them discover something for the first time in the way that their eyes light up or that the way that they say, I see myself in this narrative? Have we found ourselves in the narrative of scripture, of the Christmas story? Have we said, are there times when God has done this with me? Or maybe realizing that he didn't just do it with me first, he did it with all of his children throughout time as recorded in scripture. So when has God used us, considering the Christmas narrative, when has God used something painful in our lives to accomplish his purpose? Considering Christmas, when has God used something painful in my life to advance his purpose? Like Mary and Joseph. Stop. Linger in the story. Realize that you're not alone. When have we failed to make room for the things that God wanted to do through us? Like the innkeeper. Stop and reflect and wonder about the times that have passed. Not that we might heap shame on ourselves, but that we might catch it the next time the opportunity comes. We're always growing in our faith. When have we been witness to the miraculous work of God as it played out in front of our eyes? How in tune are we to see the things that God is doing around us? And how engaged are we in sharing that with other people like the shepherds? Linger in the story of Christmas and consider the work that the Holy Spirit is still doing. The work that he did when he brought Christ to earth is the same work that he's doing in us today. Painful things. Places where we haven't made room but could make room in the future. Things that we see happening and the courage it takes to testify and say, I see God working here. I see him doing exactly what he's always done right before me, and I will give testimony to it. So as many themes burst forth this week, I wanted to direct our considerations this morning towards one specific theme in this message, and that is generosity. It's what shined the brightest for me. And this morning, in light of generosity, I want us to direct our attention to two other parties in the narrative. The king, Herod, and the Magi. And beyond these players, I want to consider a place, the place that attracted them both. So we have one place and two parties. And it's important for us to remember that people and places matter. When we go to foreign countries, when we go to places where we haven't been, when we go down the street to the place that's very familiar, people and places matter. It's The mantra that I tell myself when I get up and leave my house in the morning on mission is that people and places matter. So the question this morning is this. What were the contrasting responses of King Herod and the Magi to the place where the most influential person in human history generously arrived on the very first Christmas day? What were the contrasting responses of these two groups to that place? So let's consider the story as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. Matthew begins his gospel with a journey through the Jewish family tree we talked about last week, linking Abraham to King David to Jesus. Why did Matthew begin his gospel with a genealogy that most of us skip over most of the time? Well, one... He needed to prove to a Jewish people that Jesus was the Jewish king. That was essential. That Jesus was linked to David, who was linked to Abraham, who was linked 
to Adam. It's one long family line. And secondly, to show that God could bring about salvation from very broken people in very broken places. We saw in that genealogy things that we hadn't seen in previous genealogies. One was that some of the second-born children were mentioned in the genealogy. It used to be just the first-born. The second was that we saw people who weren't Jewish in these genealogies. So there were foreigners, there were Gentiles mentioned in the story. And thirdly, there were women mentioned. Women were mentioned in the genealogies. And that showed that Jesus was doing something entirely different, including outsiders and women, which was contrary to the understanding of the Jewish teachers. It was just Jewish men. And God is saying through his son, Jesus, no, it's much bigger than that. And it's much sketchier because a lot of these foreigners, a lot of these people were from broken backgrounds. And God said, I want that in my lineage. That we might consider the broken places on our own past and realize that we're not disqualified for the work that God has called us to. Just because we got junk in our past. Don't hide it. Come and be a part of the fellowship of Jesus like an open book, appropriately. Finding the right people to tell. Somebody walked into this room this morning and said, I'm really glad that I'm here because I'm thinking about not being here very much longer. I'm thinking about a way to escape. Someone came in and said that this morning. Praise God that we know that someone's ready to end it so that we can come around them so they don't end it. Amen? We can come. We can come that open. We can come with that much dysfunction and still be used by Jesus. Amen? Amen. Matthew 2 verse 1 introduces us to a town. It introduces us to a king. And it introduces us to a handful of foreign dignitary. These three points of interest will be our focal point this morning as we consider generosity. So let's look at the scripture in Matthew. Before I want to show you this, this is just for fun. I saw this on the social media this week, right? Uh, We've picked up the gold and the mirth. What on earth is that? Frankenstein, frankincense, church joke, come on, gold, frankincense, Frankenstein, forget it, I tried, strike one, that's what makes it funny, bad jokes on social media, to the scriptures. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet, that being Micah, found in 5.2. This is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The prophet Micah said that hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. 
And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Take special note here. Then they opened their treasures. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, see there it is, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Again, people and places. The place is the town of Bethlehem, a town about five miles to the south of Jerusalem that sits on a ridge that's slightly above the city. Biblically, Bethlehem is known as the town where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, passed away. Rachel was also the mother of Benjamin and Joseph. This is all recorded in Genesis 35. Bethlehem is where King David and Jesus were born. In fact, it's why Joseph, who is Jesus' earthly father, had to go back to Bethlehem for the census. It was the town of his heritage. Everything is coming back to this place that was prophesied about. Kind of clever, right? That the Son of God, who is Jesus, right, would come as prophesied in Isaiah 11, from the man who was after God's own heart. The Son of God would come from the man who was after God's own heart in the same town where David was born. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it clever of God, the way that he sets things up in advance? Bethlehem means the town of bread. Culturally, it's known as a place where one could come and eat as ascribed in Isaiah 58, 6, and 7. Check out these verses. This is what Isaiah says to his people. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked and clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Is this not the kind of fast I've called you to? Because the people at the time were parading around with all kinds of fasts to show off to people. To say, look at how holy I am. Look at how righteous I am. And yet Isaiah himself says, didn't I call you to a different fast? Didn't I call you to a different focus? Didn't I call you to care for the naked and the poor and the prisoner and the hungry? Well, Bethlehem, this town of provision, this house of bread, was doing exactly as Isaiah would have said. It was a town, a place of provision. It was a place, check this out, of weeping, the different kinds of provision. You ever think about weeping as provision to heal a broken soul? There was weeping when Rachel died. Bethlehem, known as a place of blessing. It was also where Ruth and Boaz were married in the Old Testament in the town of Bethlehem. There was blessing coming from this town. There was anointing in this town at the coronation of King David. In the birth of King Jesus, there's weeping, there's blessing, there's anointing. There's refreshing for David during his battles against the Philistines. He sent those in advance to get him water and drew from the well of Bethlehem, the scriptures said, so that he might be refreshed in battle. It's weeping, it's blessing, it's anointing, it's refreshing, and it's salvation, the birthplace of Jesus. 
the house of bread, Bethlehem, the place of provision. We see from Israel's history that this little itty bitty town has a history of provision. It has a history of generosity. Wouldn't we want to be known as a place where people can come and receive blessing, receive anointing, receive refreshing, receive the good news of salvation, and maybe could even come to us and freely weep? Ever had someone just come and drop into your arms and just weep? That is holy space. It means that you've provided generous and safe space for them. Let's be a generous people that others can come to and weep in our presence. These are so many ways that we can be generous. The hope today is that we say, yes, financial provision is important, but there's so many other ways to be generous within the kingdom of God. So we've looked at the geographical and the historical context for this little town. Let's investigate the political and the religious context for this region at the time when Jesus came. This is important stuff to do. What Matthew is doing is exegeting a city. This idea of exegeting something is often referred to in context with Scripture that it's an explanation or an interpretation of Scripture. We can do that with the Bible. We can do it with communities. To exegete a community means to go into it and just start picking things up and looking under things and asking good questions and meeting people and remembering their names. Going back into history and taking it apart and saying, how does this place work? What's the story? My friend Will that's just entered the room can tell a story of Casino Road over the last 40 years. And that's a lot of story to listen to, but I want to hear Will tell more of the story. I want to hear the current day story from Danessa about driving up and down the street, taking kids to school. I want to hear the stories of this community. I want to know this place. So we're going to take a look at the people who came and approached this place. Two in particular, as I said, Herod and the Magi. So let's look at King Herod for just a minute. King Herod was an Edomite. That's from the former kingdom of Edom, which was destroyed during the Babylonian exile 700 years before there was another kingdom and it was destroyed. But King Herod came from that line of Edom. King Herod's mixed bloodlines because he wasn't all Jewish. In fact, he was just a little bit Jewish. His mixed bloodlines made him a king that raised eyebrows amongst most of the followers and he knew it. Most of the Jews at that time were very concerned about bloodlines, very concerned about genealogies, very concerned about privilege, and they had an appointed king who was appointed by the Roman government to lord over them, and they knew it. They knew he was a fake, and he knew that they knew that he was a fake. You ever been in a position where people didn't honor you, but you still had to lord over them or get them to do something on a job site? That can raise a lot of insecurities, Anyone ever felt that? Put your place, yourself in the place of King Herod. His title of king of the Jewish people came not through his family heritage, but through the Romans. And although his title of king was granted by the Romans, it was never fully accepted by the Jewish people. Why was he great then if the people that he ruled over didn't respect him? Well, he was great because he ruled for 30 years, which was uncommon in that time. When things were so politically and religiously in turmoil, he ruled for a very long time from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. 
We understand that the birth of Christ actually came somewhere between 6 and 5 B.C., which places Jesus right in the middle of this story. Herod was great because he was effective in getting things done. He rebuilt the temple for the Jews. So there were some good things that he did, but while he rebuilt buildings, he tore down people. Out of his own insecurities, he tore people down. Again, Matthew 2, verse 1. Such an important verse. We'll read it again. After Jesus was born in a place, Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Put yourself in the story. Linger in it for a minute. Here's this man of deep insecurity that's ruling a people for 30 years that builds buildings but tears down people. And these foreigners come and said, Hey, where's the king been born? Panic. We know what panic feels like, right? You know that ice cold yet clammy oozing dread that just kind of flows down through your core when you feel like your world's coming to an end? Do you know that feeling? Have you ever been in that place? You know when your heart explodes out of your chest and shockwaves are sent out through the outer extremities of your body? You know that feeling. You know how it pauses time panic does sometimes just stops the moment and it floods our consciousness with an eerie kind of disconnectedness panic if you don't know panic go and sit down and have a conversation with somebody that does because it's one of the leading outcomes in the negative fruit of mental health disorders Our community is flooded with people who deal with anxiety attacks and panic every day. If you don't know that experience, if you're not given maybe like I am and others are to extreme anxiety attacks in life, find out about it. But if you do know, know that that's how Herod felt in the moment. In the moment. Where is the Jewish king we have come to worship him? Sit in this story for a minute. These foreigners come, this insecure king, in this question was the beginning of Herod's devastating end. Put yourself in the story. Herod, this masquerading king of the Jewish people, was quite content with his seat of power. He could have stayed there. He would have been happy. So there's no way he was pleased by the arrival of these foreign stargazers. There's no way that he was pleased about that. So let's pause on Herod for just a moment. And as we do, let's consider these questions. How does panic... Oh, let's go back. Go back one, John. How does panic, how does anxiety, how does fear impact us? How does fear impact you? Does panic make room for love? Does it afford space for clarity? Does it cause us to respond with generosity towards those around us? Does fear bring out of us life or death? Fear is a big deal. And fear will shut down generosity faster than just about anything. So let's pause on Herod and consider the Magi for just a minute. Well, who are the Magi? Did some research on this. The best thing I came up with this week is, well, it's hard to say who they were. Matthew is clearly vague because he just talks about the Magi. We talk about three kings, and that just ain't in the scriptures anywhere. These things that we've made up. But the Magi, Matthew is vague, and Luke, who is usually pretty detailed about things, doesn't mention the Magi. But Chad Ashby from Christianity Today helped me out just a little bit. Let's look at this quote from from Chad. Intrigue swirls around these festooned foreigners. 
Where did they come from? With a wink, Matthew writes, the east. Indeed, his description is so utterly specific that church traditions in dozens of countries claim to be their country of origin. Yeah, the Magi, they're from us, right? It could have been what is modern-day Turkey or modern-day Iraq or modern-day Iran or modern-day Saudi Arabia or modern-day Jordan. It could have been from anywhere in the east. Technically speaking, Matthew calls the Magi, but what are the Magi? Are they kings, wise men, sorcerers, astrologers? Christians have been trying to nail down their identity for millennia. These magi of ours. Whatever the case, this is the most important thing to remember. They were foreign Gentiles. Foreign Gentiles. Non-Jewish people getting early access to the king who would one day die to be their king also. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome the way that God just unpacks this story for us? He shows us the foreign Gentiles who would come and generously give to the king of the Jews who unfortunately wanted him dead. In very short order, Matthew is setting up a pair of very interesting contrasts for us. Okay, The first one is we've got this not-so-Jewish king who is impressing the Jewish people, right? We've got this Herod, not-so-Jewish king, oppressing the people in contrast with the baby king of the Jews. Kind of like maybe Baby Yoda. Anybody watching Mandalorian? Anybody Baby Yoda? Baby Jesus? Come on now. Just having some fun. Is that a better joke than the camels and the Frankenstein? Contrasting this non-Jewish king oppressing people with the baby king Jesus who's come to set the people free. Interesting contrast there, right? Second contrast going on with the same not-so-Jewish king and a small company of kingly servants. It's more likely that the Magi were servants of a king than kings themselves, as most scholars would ascribe. And here we have Herod stuck between a rock and a hard place. You ever been there? That also creates a sense of panic. Herod panics. Here come men from both sides to see Herod's royal replacement. Herod was familiar with the Jewish political system. This is important to know. Things had become so corrupt and politics and religion had become so intertwined at this point that Herod knew how to interact. He knew how to engage with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He understood how to play nice with them and get what he needed politically and to stay in power. He understood all of that. He knew how to engage with these people, but he would have been completely unfamiliar with the Jewish texts because he wasn't really following. He wasn't really waiting, anticipating the arrival of King Jesus. How do we know this? It says because as soon as the Magi... As soon as it was reported to him that King Jesus had been born in this place of provision called Bethlehem, as soon as it was reported to him, he ran off to all his buddies, the teachers of the law and the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He ran off to them and said, hey guys, um, uh, so I haven't read up on your scriptures yet, but where, where was this king coming again? Oh, he's coming to Bethlehem. Oh, panic button. Panic. Bethlehem, the place of weeping, blessing, anointing, refreshing, salvation, the house of bread. 
So here's the question for us this morning. This is where it gets real. This is where this turns into a devotional exercise. This is where maybe we want to write a question down for our life this week and what we're doing and where we're going. The question is this. What happens when fear and faith encounter the same place of provision? Isn't it interesting? Herod and the Magi are looking at the same space, looking at the same baby, looking at the same circumstance. One responded in fear, one responded in faith. Fear in Herod produced false motives, false testimony, and ultimately a fatal end for every baby two years and under in the town of Bethlehem. If we continue reading in the script, which we will not study today, we come to see that Herod knowing that it had been two years since the Magi had first seen the star that would have signaled the coming of Jesus. He said, we got to find this kid and wipe him out. And there's so much fear, there's so much self-centeredness that to wipe out one baby, he was willing to wipe out an entire town full of babies. That's what fear does. Sometimes we're, we're presented with provision. And if our heart attaches wrong to it, we can do devastating things, right? If our heart attaches wrongly to provision, devastating things can happen. Here's an example of what happened. Let's look at something else. Because we know that when great provision is met with great fear, the outcomes are devastating. But what happens when great provision is met with great faith? This is what's going on with us right now. This is why it's so exciting to be a part of this congregation of very, very generous people right now. Is that when God is generous with us, the temptation sometimes of the pastor, of the council, of the people who are in charge of keeping track of the money, is to put it away. You ever get some money and you decide, I'm just going to sit on this. There's parables about this about the servants that received a few talents and went out and took the talents and multiplied it. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's another example of another servant that came with a little bit less resource, but just as faithful, he comes back to the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then there's the third who took the money and was so afraid of the master that he just sat on it and brought back the same amount that the servant had given him. He said, get out of my sight, you wicked servant. Where's your faith? I worked for a guy at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission that said, we are not going to sit on a pile of cash while people are starving and dying in the streets. As the guy who's in charge of human resources and hiring and payroll, that made me really nervous because if I'm being really human, it would be nice to sit on a pile of cash. And then I can rely on my pile of cash instead of Jesus, right? We are learning to walk this out. Individually, I would say that this congregation over 24 and a half years has been walking it out the whole time. But this is us right now. We're going to continue to walk that out and learn as individuals what the corporate body has been doing forever, which is being ridiculously generous. And I believe as we step out in ridiculous generosity and just give money away that we could put in the bank. Now, we'll be responsible It's important that you hear the church talk about finance, not because we're some sort of name it, claim it kind of generosity or uh, what do you call the church? The uh, prosperity. We don't have a prosperity doctrine. We don't believe that just because you have money means you have great faith or just because you don't have any money means you have no faith. But it's important for the church to hear the church talk about its finances because the, the finances of this church are really healthy. And we talk about it because we want to do more. 
We want to be greater stewards of the resource that God gave us so that when we're associated with Jesus and money's going towards things, people go, wow, they must serve a generous God. Their dad must be rich. (laughs) And he is rich and he doesn't need our money. He needs our faith. He needs our trust in him. So we'll take good care of the resources. There's a rainy day fund as any of us should have. And there's funds being set away strategically so that when the right thing comes, we can move on it. But sometimes we're just going to give stuff away. Thank you for letting me be the steward of those resources this week and just make a bunch of really fun phone calls to tell people, hey, there's more. Hey, there's more. Hey, there's more. God is generous. He calls us to be generous. What happens when fear and faith encounter the same place of provision for you, for me? How do we respond when that comes our way? The illegitimate king who was not from the town of Bethlehem, nor was he from the royal line of David, in the midst of a very legitimate fight, flight, or freeze response kind of panic, came this refrain, kill the king. Kill the king. Interesting. We see that Jesus' life is bookended with this refrain, kill the king. From the day of his birth, which he escaped physical death, to the day of his physical death, when he escaped eternal death and rose again, Jesus was surrounded by people that wanted him dead. I don't want a heart. Sometimes I have a heart that wants Jesus dead. Not really. Like, actually, no. But by the way that I'm acting, by the way I'm behaving, I might as well want him dead. Because it's about me. It's about what I want to do. It's about my time. I'm in. It's about my control, my comfort. That's killing Jesus. But to say, I will be generous with all things. As I look upon the town where provision came from, I will be generous with all things and with all people. I'm still growing in these things. I'm still growing in these things. So faith expressed through the lives of the Magi produced an overwhelming outpouring of generosity. That's what happened. The scriptures say, if you want to know the scripture that just, when I was reading this passage, the words that lit up for me this week were, they saw the king and they opened their treasures. I just thought, that's beautiful. They saw the king and they opened their treasures. They didn't hold their treasures back and pull a little something. They opened their tread. Here it is, Jesus. Here's all of it. So here's our question. This is the homework this week. In light of two different people that looked at a place, two different parties that looked at a city and responded very, very differently, here's our challenge this week as we consider generosity. What are my treasures? I spent about 15 minutes on Wednesday asking myself this question. What are my treasures? These are good questions to ask ourselves. Just a good internal audit. What are my treasures? What are the things... How, well, what are my treasures? What are the things if I lost, I'd be devastated? What are the relationships that if I lost, I'd be devastated? What are the experiences that if I lost, I'd be devastated? For some people, it's things. For, for me, it's never really been things. For me, my treasures are people, relationship. I treasure relationship. I will spend money on relationships. Not like buying them, but like going out with people that I'm in relationship with. That kind of, right? I I treasure my family, my wife, 
Katrina, my daughter, Savannah, my son, Caleb, I treasure them. You want panic to rise up? Have something go wrong with one of them. I treasure my children. I treasure my friends. I treasure this church. These relationships that are growing deeper and deeper, the more we learn about each other, they become treasured relationships. I meet with each leader of the leadership team once a month in a one-on-one. Hal comes over to my house for coffee or I go to his house for coffee. But on Thursday morning, I got to have Hal over from my house, uh, at my house, and we got to sit and drink coffee and, and sit on the couch and just pray together and share prophetic words with one another. Would I trade that for a million bucks? I don't think so. Because Hal is investing something internal in me. I'm investing something eternal in him. It's just one example. What are the relationships we treasure? I treasure future friends, people that aren't friends yet. Not everybody's like that. Some people think it's weird. I just see a friend in everybody. It's like Buddy the Elf, right? You you want to be my friend? Not everyone's... It's probably better that some people aren't that way. And I treasure my friends that aren't that way because they keep me grounded. I treasure places. I attach memories and experiences with people to places. I have some places that I love to take everybody to. I love my home because God provided it miraculously. It's a great place to be. I love Puerto Penasco, Mexico. You haven't heard much about that yet, but I spent 10 years taking junior high kids down to this city, and I still have friends there. I would love to take you there and show you the city and show you, introduce you to my friends. I love Pioneer Square in Seattle. I could actually take you there. If you haven't been to Pioneer Square with me yet and you want to go, let me know. I would love to show you the history and the context of a city and a people, and go to places and say, remember when this happened, and God showed up here, and he did this over here. I love places. I'm really beginning, the more I get to know it, to love Casino Road. I can drive around this neighborhood without my ways on now. I know how to get places, which wasn't the case a year ago. Every time I get my car, I just Google map the thing, even just going down the street. I can get around this neighborhood now. I'd love to show you the neighborhood. I'd love to show others the neighborhood. God, I can come up to Casino Road. You mind driving up to Everett? I got some stuff I want to show you people and places and experiences going places with people collecting memories and deepening relationships people make places special this room is special because of the people that gather here isn't that consistent with the theology that says that the church is not a building it's people i want to go to these places not by myself i want to go with people I love adding to people's lives by introducing people and enriching experiences. I love introducing them to places and saying, let's grow here together. That's what I treasure. What do you treasure? could be entirely different. But whatever it is that we treasure, as I thought about that this week, the Lord is always going to want us to expand in generosity in different places, right? But he was saying, why don't you work in your wheelhouse more than less? If I want to be generous, it means that I want to be generous with my time and I want to be generous with my attention. Those are things that I want to be generous with. I want the person in front of me, I'm not the best at this yet, but I want the person in front of me to be the most important person in front of me. I don't know if you've seen It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood yet. Tom Hanks is Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers is telling this reporter... I want you to be the most important person right now. Do you know who the most important person is right now? They're on the phone. And he says the name of the reporter. And he meant it. 
The person who was in front of Fred Rogers was the most important person on the planet. That's how I want to be generous with whoever's right in front of me. And I do better at it sometimes than others. Where's your wheelhouse of generosity? Maybe it's finances. Some people, you know, like God created some people to have a billion bucks. And they get to be generous with that money. And, man, watch some generous people with lots of money be really generous. Someone else is going to do that. Because we need people to fund things, and then we need people to be on the ground. And the other thing is don't despise the spaces where Jesus has made you generous. Don't wish it was somewhere else. Press into the place where God has made you generous and go crazy with it. Do it like nobody else can do it. Do it like the God-given gifts you have are for you because they are. Let's stop and just think for a minute. Lord, where would we be generous? Where would we convey the heart of a king with unlimited resources? Where could we then gaze upon the, the king and just open up our treasures and say, God, have it all? Lord, more and more, you, we want you to consume us We want you to consume us. Chris, I'm asking you to come. We're going to worship. We're going to, we're going to sing, oh, oh, come, let us adore him in just a minute. But where would that space be that we could just be crazy generous with? And then if you want to take an extra step, go to the place where you're kind of a tightwad. And I'll go to the place in my mind where I'm kind of a tightwad and say, God, would you begin to loosen that up a little bit? Would you begin to break that? As we worship him. Church, the key to generosity is worship of the king. It's faith in his provision. It's not fear of what he's going to take away from you. The only things he takes away are the things that will lead to our death and our destruction. He will take all of that from us. He will burn all of that. As we come and we worship him, as we sit before the king. Church, hold your hands open. Make this a declaration. How am I coming to the place of provision? How am I coming to the house of bread? How am I coming to Bethlehem? Lord, may your spirit begin to do a work in us. May your spirit begin to do a work through us that maybe even by Tuesday or Wednesday we would find ourselves being more generous than we had been. That we'd be more open-handed learning and knowing and remembering that all the resources we have come from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change, who does not shift like the shadows. Church, stand with me. We want to be a generous people. We want to, at Christmas, where people are feeling a lack of relationship, feeling a lack of hope, A lack of hope to the extent that they might be ready to say, I don't want this gift of life that you gave to me. May that spirit of death be broken by the power of Jesus in this room. If anyone else would be feeling maybe this gift of life isn't worth it, church, I encourage you, come to the King. Holy Spirit, as we close this service today, increase generosity in us to full measure. Thank you, Lord. We adore you, Jesus. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.